The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. So this morning, uh, Dan has graciously allowed me the privilege to come and to bring you the preached word this morning. So I was able to pick any passage other than what you have already heard preached since you've been here. So that's always a fun thing to do. To like, okay, here's the Bible. Pick a passage to preach. And I've never preached a passage before out of the book of Romans. So that's what y'all are getting this morning. And by the way, as another aside, y'all should really start using the word y'all because it's the second person plural you, which we don't have in the English language. But the Southerners figured that out, and I've picked that up my last three years in Charlotte, even though I grew up in Wisconsin. So just consider that. So the text this morning is Romans chapter 5. We're going to look at the first 11 verses. Oh, I don't have the bulletin. Page 942 in the Red Book Bible. And page 1397 for the Children's Bible. 942 is the same as my Bible. All right. And we use ESV, is that correct? Okay. So one more time, the text is Romans 5, verses 1 through 11. I think we're, we're good to go. So I'm going to read God's word, so give, give attention to the reading of God's word, please. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, Shall we be saved by his life? More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Would you please pray with me? Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for this time this morning to gather and to hear from your word. We know that your word is eternal. It will never pass away. It is Without error, we can put all of our trust in what you say in your word. May you please now, by your Holy Spirit, come and accompany the the preaching of your word this morning, Lord. May you prepare our hearts. May you allow distractions to fall aside. May you turn our eyes to Jesus. Please help us this morning to hear from you. We need your spirit to do this. We love you and pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever thought of what you want your dying words to be? Maybe you haven't. 
It's not something I regularly think about. There was a pretty well-known theologian from the 19th century, the early 19th century. He was a Princeton theologian. His name was B.B. Warfield. This guy was a genius. He was fantastic uh, in defending the Bible, in writing uh, theology, in doing good things for the church. He was a, he's a, an awesome guy. Pretty much anything you probably would read from him, you would enjoy and benefit from. His dying words, on his deathbed, he said this, this brilliant guy, Jesus loves me, this I know. The simple but profound truth that Jesus loves sinners is truly profound. It is amazing. And it was his last words. Now, the, the passage that, we, that I just read this morning, the first 11 verses, is chock full of rich biblical truths that we really could spend far more time than I have this morning looking at and, and diving into. But if I had to summarize it to three words, it would be Jesus loves you, which is, which is the, the central theme, I think, of this passage. Now, it's not surprising that because Jesus loves us, that love somehow changes us and means things and implies certain things. So this morning, I don't know if it's going to be up on the screen or not, but we're going to see that Jesus' love for us means that we are justified, it means that we are encouraged, and that we're confident. Those are the three simple points that we're going to look at. So again, if, if you have your Bibles, look with me again to verse 1. We're going to kind of dive in to consider now how we are justified. Verse 1 says this, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Now again, I chose a passage in the middle of Romans. So, so quickly, the first three and a half chapters of Romans talk about the need of justification. It basically talks about how, how we're sinners, how we've fallen away from perfection, and how we sin against God. And the next chunk of Romans, up to where we are, talks about the way of justification, how someone is justified. And particularly chapter 4, right before us, is all about Abraham, this Old Testament character from the book of Genesis, who you probably looked at not too long ago, was justified by his faith. And Paul, the writer of this book, looks at that and says, yes, that is how we are justified today, by faith. Okay, so then, now in chapter 5, it starts the fruit, the blessings, the outcome of this justification. And that's kind of where we're jumping into right now. So we, we looked at the need, the way, now we're looking at the fruit. Now, what does it mean to be justified? It is a, it is a big word. It could be confusing, but it's, it's in the Bible. Justification, think of it as a one-time act of God. A one-time act, a ruling where he slams down the javelin on the table and says, you are forgiven of your sins. I, my love is upon you. I love you because of Jesus Christ. It's a one-time irrevocable act of God where sins are forgiven and Christ's perfection is given to us and God loves us. It's a one-time act of God. So now look and consider, how are we justified, right? Look at the text again. By faith. That was the whole of chapter 4. By faith, Abraham was justified. He believed God, and it was counted to him, and he was accepted for it. 
It was sim- it's simple faith in Jesus Christ that he is who he says he is and has done what the Bible says he has done. And look what that achieves for us. Look what the text says. Peace with God. Peace with God. Peace is an interesting thing, right? It is pretty much a universal pursuit. You even have uh, Miss America pageants. What do they always say that they're after, their hope is? I want world peace, right? Peace, okay, so that's a, that's a broad scale. From nation to nation, we seek after and pursue peace. And even relationally, individually, in our own lives, peace is something that we pursue, that we desire. No one, no normal person likes to be in conflict and likes to be in, in strife with someone dear to them. Peace is something we want. But on a whole nother level, peace with God, the creator of the universe, is what the text says that we have through Jesus Christ. And that is why we have peace. It is through Jesus Christ. Not because of ourselves in any way, nor anything that we could ever do to earn or to contribute or to merit this peace with God, but only through Jesus Christ. This is how we have peace. Look, look with me again at verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope in the glory of God. So now the apostle is continuing to show more of the results of this faith in Christ. This faith gives us access into this grace, right? There's some kind of particular grace here. Now, access, what this is kind of saying is admission into the presence of someone who is very important. If you were to think of the president of the United States, that's not someone who you can regularly come before and talk to and be in his presence of, right? Even the first lady, there are times when she has to not be and cannot be with the president, so this, I mean, even for us, someone like, we, I probably could never talk with the President of the United States, ever. But he is very important. How much more important is the creator of the universe? And this access is not periodic. It's not temporary. It's not once a month. It's not once in your life. It is continual, perpetual, everlasting access into this grace. Now, this grace we can understand that when we are justified, when God looks upon you and sees Christ and what he has done and says justified, accepted, loved because of Christ, that's the entrance into this grace. But then the standing in this grace is progression, endurance, walking through your life of faith, continuing in the grace in which you entered continuing into the grace through Christ and what he has accomplished. And when we're in this grace standing, what do we do? As the text says, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope is a, is a really fantastic word in the Bible. Hope, if you just think about it, what that means for us, hope is something that we are affected by now, right? If we're hoping for something in the future, that hope of this future thing changes us now, does it not? It impacts how we live, what we think, what we're expecting or looking forward to. So it's a, a future-oriented thing which affects us now. And the thing that I'm talking about is the glory of God. 
Now, the glory of God, the Bible tells us, is in creation. The creation proclaims the glory of God. Also, a big proclamation was Jesus at the cross when he came and died on the cross for sinners and was raised to life from the dead, showed himself to many, and ascended back up to the right hand of God, that proclaims the glory of God. But what else? The future-oriented glory of God that this passage is talking about is the second coming of Christ. When he comes again, the Bible tells us that he will come again. Jesus said that he will come again. This future-oriented hope that we have of Jesus coming again. One commentator referred to the second coming as a powerful stimulus to our current duty. A powerful stimulus to our current duty. My last year of seminary, so just this last year, I was down in Charlotte, and I was wanting to do RUF at the time, and I didn't go to RUF because I went to UW-Milwaukee where there isn't an RUF. I had never heard of RUF, or the PCA for that matter, until I went to seminary, which is interesting how now the Lord has called me to the PCA and to doing RUF. But nonetheless, I knew I wanted to do it in my last year. There became an open position for a part-time RUF minister at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. Now, I didn't even know the job existed because I, I wasn't aware. I wasn't connected. I didn't know anyone higher up in RUF. But there was a, f- a kind of a, more of an acquaintance that I had at seminary, a great guy, uh, very grateful for him. But he was well-connected and knew lots of people in RUF. So this job came open, and he said he went to them and talked to them and said, you know, I think Mike Wensler should do this job. I think he wants to do RUF. It'd be a great opportunity for him. I think he'd be good at it. It would be good experience. You know, and just kind of went on and said he'd be able to do it. You should give this job to Mike Wensler. So then I was called about the job, and throughout the process, I had to interview for it. But I was given this job. So by the word and work of someone else, I was given this gift that I really had no basis for earning. I hadn't done anything to deserve this job with RUF last year. But because of the word and work of someone else, I received it. Now apply that to justification. Apply that to Jesus and what he has done. Because of who Jesus is and what he has done, we are given this gift that we have no basis for deserving at all. Jesus, by who he is and by going to the cross has achieved for us peace with God. And that is a gift that he gives to us that we could never earn. So what does this mean for you, okay? Sunday morning, you know, ground level, what does this mean? Well, first off, peace with God. If you don't have it, if you don't have peace with God, hear me say you need it. You want peace with God. He is the maker of heaven and earth. By his word, Everything continues to exist. And the only way to peace with God is through the Lord Jesus Christ. The only way to peace with God is by his sacrifice, by his paying for our sins on the cross. And this is done through faith in Christ. So if you don't have peace with God, let me tell you, it is wonderful. It does change your life here and now. And I plead with you to... Look to Christ and to believe in him and this sacrifice that he has done on your behalf. 
if you have peace with God, if you are a Christian, and if you are here this morning and are trusting in Christ, continue to stand firm in this grace. As our text said, you have access, you have regular, not periodic, regular, constant access to God because of who Jesus is and what he has done. Let this sink down into your heart. You can rejoice in this, as our passage tells us this morning. Now, Jesus' love for us does not only make us justified, and if it, if it were only to do that, that would be amazing, but it does more. It also encourages us here and now. Again, if you have your Bibles, look with me to verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So the apostle here, the writer of the New Testament of Romans, continues to show here what Jesus' love means for sinners here and now. The passage tells us to rejoice in our sufferings. That's interesting, isn't it? Or maybe our first reaction to that would be, well, this is either wrong or Paul is crazy, right? I mean, that is a serious claim. Rejoice in your sufferings. What does the world tell us to do with our sufferings? Run from them. Avoid them. Do anything you can. Spend money. Buy this. Get this. Talk to this person. Do this to avoid suffering. That's not what God tells us to do, but to rejoice in our sufferings. Let's consider what suffering is for a moment. This is the, the 99 cent Mike Wensler definition of suffering, which probably is, you could poke holes in, but I'm calling suffering this morning painful circumstances that test your patience and expose your heart. Painful circumstances that test your patience and expose your heart. Martin Luther said this. He said, Tribulation does not make people impatient, but proves they are impatient. It's interesting to think about. See, suffering exposes our hearts because it shows who or what you're dependent on. It's basically an x-ray machine of your heart, and it's showing what's inside of it. And when you are truly suffering as a Christian, it really does expose what is important to you where your hope is, where your confidence is. And this passage is, is certainly not, hear me say this, this passage is not telling the Christian that we need to pretend that suffering isn't hard. It's not saying, oh, we're not really suffering. You know, just kind of the power of right thinking. That's not what this passage is doing. It's not telling us to downplay the reality that life is hard, that suffering hurts. That's not what we see going on here. But look at the ripple effect produced by suffering, right? What does Paul say? He says, suffering produces endurance. We can say endurance is a staying to a course of action, okay? Suffering helps us to stay to a course of action, produces endurance. Endurance produces character. This is kind of a quality about someone that they've stood the test, Character is standing the test, having stood the test. And this character produces hope, which does not put us to shame. So in the end, and this is only one 
possible reason. I'm not, this is not an exhaustive list, but for sure we know that suffering does this one thing. That suffering, that in terms of our salvation, in terms of our general walk with the Lord, maybe, maybe how he's changing us, suffering is there so that our salvation may be gradually increased. That is a shocker. Suffering contributes positively to our salvation. It's not something we think about or really even can understand, but that's what the Bible is telling us. And the the verse then goes on to tell us why our hope is not put to shame. Because God's love has been poured out by the Holy Spirit into our hearts. Why will our hope never let us down? Because God will never let us down. That's why our hope is not wasteful, it's not useless, but is significant because God has poured out his love by his Holy Spirit and this hope because God will never let us down. So this is a subjective Holy Spirit working in the heart of believer, changing our lives. Okay, Now this will be different for certain believers at certain times. Maybe you, you're in a, a really good, strong time in your life right now where you are feeling encouraged and you are aware of the Holy Spirit pouring out this love in your, in your heart and, and you are encouraged and positive, even though it may, you might be enduring something. Or maybe conversely, you are beaten and broken down. And you, and you might say, I am not too aware of the Holy Spirit's love that's being poured out in my heart right now. And that's okay. And we go through... Periods, And we go through highs and lows in terms of our subjective awareness of God's love in our hearts. But look, at, look with me now to, to if that's you, if you're, if you're kind of broken down and not aware of that. Take your encouragement from verses 6 through 8. Look with me in these verses. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person... Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is huge. Here we see objectively, historically, the love of God through Jesus Christ for sinners. So notice all the negatives of how we're referred to here, right? While we are sinners, ungodly, enemies, and basically powerless, that's when Christ died for us. John Stott, a commentator, I think kind of helps us, helps elaborate on how significant this truly is. He says this, the essence of loving is giving. Okay, the essence of loving is giving. And the significance of that love is measured in two ways. One, how costly the gift is. And two, how worthy or unworthy the receiver of that gift is. So now apply that to what Christ has done and who he is, right? We have the gift being the most costly gift that could ever be given. The life and blood of Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, given for sinners. The most costly, immeasurable uncontainable gift ever given, okay? And then consider who it's given towards. The most unworthy people. Worthless sinners. 
like all of us. This should, this should be jumping off the text to us. The most precious gift to the people who deserve it the least. Do you see how much Jesus truly loves you and me? There's a, a UW-Milwaukee student that I know, one of the very few UW-Milwaukee students that I know, who about five months ago lost his father to an unexpected heart attack. And I was pretty nervous that this was going to really do detrimental things to his faith and to his walk with the Lord. Uh, and one could understand that in some sense. But when I talked with him, and when I just asked him how he was doing, I, you know, I was expecting maybe just anger at God, fist shaking, turning his back, walking away from the faith that his parents raised him up in and you know, gave to him to know. But he surprisingly was encouraged in his faith through this time. It's really amazing to consider that for the true Christian who is justified, who is this one time declared righteous by God, for the true Christian, suffering does not, even the worst of suffering does not take away your faith and will not cause you to fall away from, ultimately, from Christ and from your faith in Christ. But to the opposite of that, it will contribute positively to your walk with Christ. We don't always see that or know the exact reason why God does this type of thing. But for my friend, for this UWM student, he could honestly say, hey, it's, it's really hard. And we talked about the different ways that it was hard. But he said, I'm, I'm encouraged, actually, in my faith for, for these different reasons, for just trusting in the confidence of, of Christ and that my dad was a Christian and I'll be with him again one day in glory. And that, you know, I mean, he was encouraged after one of the most difficult things probably he'll ever experience of losing his dad at a young age. Now, here's the truth, and I definitely don't need to tell you this truth because you all know it. But life is full of suffering. If it's the loss of a job or of a friend or of a family member, if it's physical illness of some sort, maybe it's just this continual struggle with a sin or some kind of a sin problem. Maybe it's just constantly you're, that you're plagued with spiritual doubt and you just never can, can be sure enough to have any kind of hope or confidence. Maybe it's troubles with raising your children. Maybe it's an unstable economy. The list could go on and on, right? But the Bible tells us, and this is the really cool part, that we can rejoice in these terrible times of suffering because God is in control and he works them in a way which sometimes we don't know but in a way that contributes to the bettering of our faith, the bettering of our salvation and our love for and walk with Jesus. Really it's true that suffering is sanctifying. Suffering changes us. It pries our fingers off these idols in our lives that we may be clinging to but don't even see, right? So I, I hope that we can all be encouraged here and now by the, for two reasons. For the personal work of the Holy Spirit pouring out this love in the heart of the believer, but also because we can look back objectively in history at the love of God for sinners in Jesus Christ and that while we were still sinners, while we were enemies of God, 
Christ died for us. Let's now finish uh, this passage and see that Christ's love also brings, that Christ's love for us also means confidence. Look with me again at verse 9, please. Since, therefore, we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God? I like to imagine Paul here, I, I just, as I was studying this text and preparing it for today, I imagine Paul sitting there thinking, here's the cross of Christ in the past and what he has done and he's died for sinners and how amazing that is. And look at what that means for me now in terms of my faith and how I'm walking with Christ. But look at, look at what's going to happen in the future. Jesus is going to come. I'm hoping for this amazing thing and how that affects me now because of what's here. And he's just kind of looking, you know, he can't, he doesn't, can't tell where to look because it's so amazing what Christ has done, what that means for us now, and what that guarantees for us in the future. And this verse is one of the, the future-looking verses, okay? Paul's, Paul lays out an argument from the greater to the lesser here. He's basically saying, if something really hard to accomplish, really, really difficult to accomplish, has been accomplished, how much more can this little, small, lesser hard thing be accomplished? That's what Paul's doing here. If while we were enemies of God, God can look at us and stamp the seal of justified on us and forgiven and forever loved on us. While we were enemies, if he can do that, how much more can he save us from the wrath of God that is coming at the end? That's what Paul is doing here. Basically to say, if Christ has died for his enemies, he surely will save his friends. That's what Paul's summarized argument is. So those who are justified, true followers of Christ, do not have to fear the wrath of God, which is to come. Elsewhere in the Bible, it speaks of this future wrath. And what's interesting, the one who died to save sinners on the cross humbly is the same person, Jesus, who comes back and brings the wrath of God. One particular place where it talks about that is Second Thessalonians 1, where Jesus is the one who comes in judgment, pouring out the wrath of God on sinners whose blood was not atoned for at the cross. It's a serious, weighty, difficult doctrine. But that's what Paul is saying, that we can now not fear because of the life of Christ. And he continues in verses 10 and 11. For if, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. So now Paul is wrapping up this little section of Scripture, and he repeats that argument from the greater to the lesser. If this hugely difficult thing of Christ dying for his enemies and his blood paying the penalty for sin, if that has been accomplished, now that we're friends and not enemies... What does his life say about our lives now? And the, the beautiful thing is that Jesus did not stay in the grave. He didn't just sacrifice his life and die, and that was the end of the story. It wouldn't be the most hopeful story after all, would it? But Christ rose from the grave. He wrote, and he is now living bodily in heaven. And the Bible tells us elsewhere that he is praying for us. He is there 
interceding and praying for his people even now and until he comes again. Paul is basically saying this, in case you doubt that you're going to make it through life walking with Jesus, in case you you just doubt that you will be able to endure, consider what Jesus has done and consider his life. He's alive. He is living in heaven and is coming again. You will be saved by his life, Paul is saying. And if that's not enough, he closes in verse 11 with the highest reason for rejoicing, God himself. We rejoice because of God, who who is the, the best blessing and who is the source of all blessing. We rejoice because God is ours through Jesus Christ. It's really amazing. We do not live on our own now, but joyfully through Christ in God. There's a story of one of the first martyrs of the Christian church, a man by the name of Polycarp, which is a fantastic name. You should name your babies Polycarp. Um, He died around 150 A.D. He was 86 years old. He had walked with Jesus in faith for his whole life, as long as he could remember. And eventually when his pursuers caught up with him, they said to him, Confess Caesar and deny Christ. And Polycarp said this, Eighty-six years have I served him, and he hath done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king who saved me? He went to the stake and was burned. But you can just see the confidence that he had pervading those words. The confidence that he had in Christ, that because he had peace with God, It did not matter the trial. It did not matter the suffering. It did not matter what life brought his way. He would be with Christ, and it would be okay, and it would contribute for good for his salvation. His confidence was overwhelming. Now, in in contrast to this, we might look at our confidence in earthly things, and just see how weak that often is, right? Maybe our confidence in our job staying around or our business staying open is, is struggling at times. Or confidence in relationships or our own health or our favorite sports team. Go Packers. Or paying the bills or confidence in our, in our retirement account or something like that. These could, could, confidence could be weak in these areas. We might not know how it really will end up for us in the end, right? But our confidence in Jesus affects our confidence in the rest of our lives. I want you to see this. So maybe you say, okay, I'll be saved in heaven, but what about now? What about those trials and the hardships of life now? So through Jesus Christ, through Christ, you are brought near to God, who has the ability to give you what you need and does so every time. Think about that. God really does give you what you need every time. It might not be what you want, but it is what you need. And God is the one who has the power and the, the ability to give those things, and, and he is ours through Jesus Christ. So trust him. Have a humble confidence in him that Jesus loves you, and this changes every part of your life, how you look at and think about everything in life. 
So allow me to close with an argument from the greater to the lesser, like the Apostle Paul. If you have peace with God through Jesus Christ, how much more is Jesus able to hold your hand and guide you through life? If you have peace with God through Christ, how much more is he able to hold your hand and guide you through all of life? Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we are so grateful that you are God in the flesh and that you have laid down your life for us. You truly love us. And you did not stay in the grave, but you rose from the dead, thereby turning our eyes towards the resurrection, guaranteeing for us that we will rise from the dead one day, that this is not it, that we need not despair here and now. But Jesus, because you've saved us, You've guaranteed us eternal life. But this also means that we can trust you now, that we have peace with God now, that our lives will be different, that you will change us, that you will work in us, that you are with us and you've promised to never leave us. And because of your blood, we are justified, that forevermore the Father will look on us and see your beauty and see your perfection And this is given to us because of what you've done for us. We thank you so much. We pray for all of us here as we continue to walk with you through life, that we would look to you, Jesus, that we would see you, that we would be reminded of how much you love us, that you love us by your Holy Spirit and his work in our hearts, but you've also shown us your love for us, that you died for us in history, that we can know for certain that you truly did Show us the love of God and that you died for sinners and that we are now your friends. We just praise you with all of our hearts. We look to you here and now. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.